Good morning, everybody. Uh, a couple years ago, a couple summers uh, ago, I'm in a school program right now in Chicagoland. In fact, I'm leaving tonight for my very last seminar in this program. Which thanks I'm, be to God. Thanks <laughs> be to God. We need a liturgy for that. Yes. Thanks be to God. Uh, a couple years ago, I was in a class with a guy named Al Roxborough, who is... Uh, a uh, professor, author about um, missional church, missional leadership. The class was about leadership and mission. And really, his um, he is a he's a cranky old guy. I tell you what, but he is one of the most brilliant people that I have ever met. Um, and the premise of the class was how do we lead in uh, a, a, an environment where things feel like they're unraveling religiously, spiritually? What does it look like to pay attention to God and to follow the lead of God's Spirit in this kind of context of unraveling that we find ourselves in? And so at the beginning of every class, every day we did this little prayer exercise uh, that he called Dwelling in the Word. And we would listen to a text and then we would share with a partner next to us. And then we'd come back together and that partner would uh, reiterate what we had said to them and vice versa. We would, it's a, like a reflective listening exercise. And, and, and as Roxborough said, his hope was that out of the, the synergy of these conversations and these comments and observations, that we might hear something from God. And do you know... Um, what text we listened to every day that week for class. It was the story we just read, out of Acts 16, verses 6 through 15. This story about Paul making his way over to Macedonia, and the story about meeting Lydia and starting a church in Philippi. Why? Why would Roxborough pick this story? To be the one that we dwelled in as he was talking about leading in an age of unraveling. Why? Well, a few years ago, I was listening to a podcast of uh, a well, I'll say a well-known megachurch leader in the Southeast. He's written a lot of books. I've read his books on leadership. They're outstanding. Uh, he is, he's a visionary. Uh, I, was listening, I was listening to him talk about basically what for him was the heart of of leadership and missionary leadership, church leadership. And he said, you know, it really boils down to clarity. People are hungry for clarity. And if, as a leader, you've got clarity, you know where you're going, you know what you're doing, you know what the answers are, people are going to follow you. That sounds great. But it does not resonate with my experience as a leader at all, unless I am BSing all the time. Because the truth is, I don't have clarity most of the time. I feel confused. I'm not sure about what's coming. So unless I'm going to pretend that I have clarity, my leadership feels a lot different than the kind of leadership that he's talking about. Not to mention, when we look at this story, 
And we see Paul. We see this kind of behind-the-scenes observation from one of his teammates who's, who's writing Acts. And what happens to Paul? Uh, they go on their, their, their journey. They set out to go and visit the churches that they'd helped to start before. And then they start to branch out into to new territory from Antioch and Pisidia. That's right here. They start this journey right here. And they start branching out into new territories. And they try, they try to go up into Bithynia. And it doesn't work. We don't know what happened except for the door was closed and the Holy Spirit had something to do with it. They tried to come down into Asia, the place where they would end up planting a boatload of churches. But at the time, it wasn't happening. Um, for all accounts, uh, if you're going to judge a pioneering startup kind of mission beyond the work that Paul did just nurturing the churches that had already been starting, he was getting an F at this part of the missionary journey. It was not working. He did not know what he was doing. Let's be real about that. And his teammate is saying, God must have not wanted us to go there because we couldn't do jack squat. We couldn't go where we wanted to go. We did not have clarity. It was trial and error. Man, that feels a lot more like my experience in the mission. Trial and error. We tried this. Nope. We tried that. Nope. We tried this. Oh, okay. Maybe that's it. Yeah. And then finally, there's some breakthrough. You know, we can judge Paul. Say, oh, yeah, Paul, bless his heart. You know, um, he's just not, he's not a good leader in the clarity paradigm. You know, he, he, uh, he's got some growth to do, right? Or, or we can take heart and have some solidarity and maybe poke at that clarity paradigm and say, maybe, maybe leadership isn't about pretending you have clarity. Maybe joining God in the mission is just figuring it out as you go and being humbly dependent on God to lead you to the next step and then the next step. A group of us went to Tampa a few months ago and observed the Tampa Underground, which is this network of of 200 plus... Are you locked out, Ted? The the Holy Spirit is closing the doors. (laughs) (laughs) And we love it. So we, we visited the Tampa Underground, this network of 200 plus microchurches, and one of their leaders was talking about the basic journey that all of their missionaries take. Um, and it was, it was not just an anecdotal uh, recounting. This was based on the work of some researchers that came into Tampa Underground from a university and they studied the patterns of missionary leaders in their community. And they discovered that as leaders came to faith in Jesus, they had this moment where they they kind of uh, fell into a pit. They saw what was wrong with the world. They believed that Jesus was Lord. But when stacked up against the realities around them, uh, it it was overwhelming. And they kind of entered into this phase of deconstruction. Like the answers that I had didn't make sense. Um, the, the, the things that I've believed up to this point uh, don't, don't really align. 
And so they had to sort things out. They're, they're in this pit of deconstruction. And as they start to reconstruct and find Jesus in the pit, they start to come out. And what happens is they receive some sort of calling. They get some vision from God about who God is inviting them to be present with and to love and to serve. And that, that's kind of a backup to a, an emotional mountain of sorts. It's exciting. The, it's the prospect of a new venture. Hey, we're on the cusp of something. And, and, you know, you would think they would just only in the clarity paradigm, they would continue to climb the mountain ever more and grow the megachurches, right? Uh, but no, it, of these 400 microchurch leaders, the next pattern was down again. Down emotionally, down spiritually, because what happens when you hit the trenches? Um, you hit a wall. You hit walls. You hit challenge and spiritual warfare. You hit problems that you know are way above your pay grade. And so what they describe is the missionaries who see breakthrough in the mission are the ones who, when they hit the wall, they pivot. They learn from what the wall is teaching them. They listen to God and they they pivot. They pivot away from Bithynia and they keep going. And they pivot away from Asia and they keep going until they see a breakthrough. And so the pattern of these missionaries in mission is hit the wall and pivot and hit the wall and pivot and hit the wall um, into something growing up out of the neighborhoods and the culture uh, around them. It sounds kind of like what's happening in this story with Paul, where he's hitting a wall and pivoting and hitting a wall. He's where many people would give up and say, it wasn't meant to be. It's too hard. Go, let's turn back. It must not be our day. He kept going. The, his team kept going. Paul ends up getting this vision or a dream. The man of Macedonia, uh, which, you know, it, it sounds super spiritual and wonderful. Like Paul is a is a grade-A missionary, right? Um, Dallas Willard would say that God gives people dreams and visions when they're half-awake or when they're asleep because he can't get their attention when they're awake. So maybe that's the, the case for Paul as well, that he's, he's, he and his team are having a really hard time getting it. They're confused. They're not sure where they're supposed to be going or what's next. He ends up in Troas thinking, yeah, this is a, a port city. Uh, lots of people come through here. Maybe, maybe there's some work here for us to do. And they're hanging out there. He receives this vision, this man from Macedonia calling him saying, hey, come and help us. Which, interestingly, missionaries throughout the ages have had similar experiences. Um, St. Patrick is a noteworthy one. He had his own kind of Macedonia moment. Um, after being in slavery in Ireland for many years, uh, he was never going back to that place. And God couldn't get his attention. <laughs> and he had a dream. And it was one of his captors saying, uh, young man, come back and teach us about the way of Jesus. And that's how he entered it and started his work with his team in Ireland. Um, I have my own uh, less dramatic, uh, uh, minuscule kind of Macedonia moment. And it had to do with my neighborhood. Um, one night, uh, we were living in Dallas by White Rock Lake, and um, I had a dream, and uh, I was dreaming about John, my neighbor, two houses down. Uh, he's a sports writer, real nice guy, 
uh, had some, grew up in the Catholic Church, but like left it, you know, in his youth or when he went to college. And, you know, was not not a religious or spiritual uh, guy at all. When we talked, kind of right when we moved into the neighborhood, I described some of what we were doing. He said, and he used this word, he's a, he's a journalist. Um, that sounds nouveau. And I was like, well, I, mean, I don't know what that is, but okay. You know, okay, it sounds great. Uh, but he was open. And we became friends. Our kids played together. Our families had dinner together. And then I have this dream. And in the dream, I'm standing in my front yard, and John is looking at me saying, Charles, I'd really like to hear more about what you're doing. And I woke up, and uh, I was just a little bit disturbed by that. Like, uh, did I really? Because I don't ever remember my dreams, and I remembered this. I did not know what to do with it. Am I, I've never had a dream like this before. What am I supposed to do? And so I went to some of my more charismatic friends who are more comfortable with dreams than I am. Um, they're fellow church planning colleagues. And I, I, I sat down and coffee with them. I said, hey, guys, I had this dream about this guy. And, you know, like, I, uh, it'd be kind of weird to, like, like, go and talk to him about it. Be like, hey, man, I... I've been dreaming about you. you know, like, <laughs> I need to share the gospel or something. You know, like that's weird. I'm not doing that. Uh, they're like, well, let's let's pray and let's listen on behalf of your friend uh, John and and ask God what what does God want you to know about John? And we had this time of prayer where I felt like God gave me a, a scripture. I wasn't really sure why I had this scripture run through my mind, and God. Uh, God reminded me that John was God's son and that God loved John. And um, I shared that with my friends and they're like, why don't you hang out with him and see if God gives you an opportunity to talk to him about that. So long story short, um, I invited him to go to the lunch, just him, just he and I. And I, again, was so weirded out by like, how do I tell him that like, I, I feel like God has given me something to share with him. Well, and he starts to talk about a crisis in his life. And what God gave me to share with him lined up perfectly with the crisis he was in the midst of. And, you know, it wasn't, we didn't go to the water to be baptized that day. But I felt like God broke in. And I was able to share something with him, to encourage him, to let him know that God loved him, and to pray for him. And, like, I sense God working in my neighborhood through that relationship. So uh, they arrive in Philippi after this dream. They take a boat uh, across from Troas. They, they kind of puddle hop a Samothrace, an island that's right in the middle. Then they get over to Neapolis. Oh yeah, they're all up there. They go over to Neapolis, about 10 miles inland is Philippi. And Philippi is a leading Roman colony. Um, long time before Octavius, Roman Emperor won a major battle over Mark Antony, I think, and, and honored Philippi with the, the highest designation that a Roman colony could receive. They were tax exempt. You know, they, they were very proud. And Luke, um, the author of Acts, is from Philippi. So when he, when he brags on Philippi in the narrative, he's, he's like got a little hometown love going on. This is a great 
city and all of Macedonia, but it was also true. They had, they had special status. All that to say, this is an outpost, a, a bastion of the Roman Empire, uh, of the, uh, the prevailing kingdom of the day. And this is where they, they show up. Um, interestingly, one of my first questions um, in this text, knowing the story of Acts that comes up to this point, was why didn't they go to the synagogue? Right? Paul has this habit when he goes into a city, he always goes to the synagogue first. And he talks with the, with the Jewish folks. That's a theological priority for Paul. First for the Jewish folks, then for the Gentiles. But it's also a practical strategy. Where is the low-hanging fruit? Let's look for the people who believe in God and talk to them about Jesus. We, we've got similarities. We have the same religion and background. Let's talk to them first. Maybe that's our best shot of like seeing people come around to the way of Jesus. But in this story, he doesn't go to a synagogue. Instead, they go outside of the gates. Why? Why do they do that? Well, uh, scholars' best guess is um, they're probably, for any number of reasons, either there weren't enough men, Jewish men, to constitute a quorum to create a synagogue within the city of Philippi, or Judaism, I mean, we're, we're a long way from Jerusalem and from the home base of Judaism. Um, Judaism is a very small sect out here in this part of the Roman Empire. It's very likely that it was just a little splinter group and Philippi and Rome were not recognizing it. They, they, they didn't know about this mysterious little monotheistic cult over here. You know, like they don't have you had to have permission if you're a religion to be able to meet, have a meeting place in the city. So for whatever reason, reason, either they didn't have critical mass or they just weren't welcome. There was not substantial Jewish presence in Philippi. And so it required something different of Paul and his team. Again, they're having to adapt. This, they're in non-Jewish territory now in a way they haven't been before. And so that's why they go outside of the gates, because that's where uh, religious minorities and unrecognized um, spiritual groups would go. To meet. If you can't meet in the city, let's go outside of the gates, outside of the control of the empire, and they find a place by a river, which is called a place of prayer. And they go there probably looking for Jewish men who would be there praying um, with their families, and they find uh, almost entirely a group of Jewish women. And not solely Jewish. There's Lydia there, who's not Jewish. She's a God-fearer. It says she's a worshiper of God. That's technical language for she was non-Jewish, but she followed Jewish customs because she was attracted to the God of Judaism, to Yahweh. So they find these, these women, and, and uh, again, scholars speculate that part of the reason they might find these women at this river is because of Jewish ritual washings. Um, that's a big part of Judaism. And especially as a woman um, with uh, menstrual cycles, having to do body washing every month to be made ready for prayer and worship, um, it wasn't uncommon for them to be together by the river. So again, outside the gates, uh, outside of the power of the empire, not Jewish men who they would have intuited would be the leaders and the spiritual stronghold, but a group of 
of women who are there to pray, and it focuses in, in particular, on Lydia. They start, they sit down, Paul sits down just like, just like a rabbi would in a synagogue and starts proclaiming from scripture, like would be their custom there, and um, they meet Lydia. Lydia is, uh, she's, uh, she's wealthy. She's a business owner. She deals in um, exotic imports from Asia. And she lives there in Philippi. And for whatever reason, maybe it was a synagogue from Thyatira that, where she met God, the God of the Hebrew Bible. Who knows? Uh, but she's out there at the river um, to pray. And she hears Paul talking about Jesus and the way of Jesus She's probably, she may be a widow, but she's this transplant from Asia. The very place that they tried to get into earlier, but couldn't because the Holy Spirit kept them. There's a little bit of irony in the story. Um, and it says the Lord, the Lord opened Lydia's heart to um, the message and to what Paul was saying. And she becomes the host of the church. In Philippi, she's got a big house in Philippi and she impresses on Paul uh, to host them and to let her house be the home base for Macedonia operations. Um, You know, it's interesting to me at the end of that story, just a little exchange. Again, uh, I get the sense that Paul is trying to figure stuff out because Lydia has to convince him. She, she persuaded us, Luke said. And her, her, her rhetoric is brilliant. If you feel like my conversion as a result of your very competent gospel preaching was effective, you will let me be on your church funding team. Well, okay. I mean, I guess we have to say yes to that. I mean, she leverages it to the hill, which is brilliant. And because of that, becomes the host of... This, uh, this home base, and it is. From here, they, there they go out to Thessalonica, they go to Corinth, and Philippi is the, it's the bridge into Macedonia. And I guess what, what to observe, uh, a couple of things here, is just that um, God, we find God at the margins, per usual. Yes, uh, one of our values is that God is at the margins. And here, like in so many other, other of our experiences, the kingdom comes to life. The kingdom is birthed. The, the kingdom breaks out at the margins of empire. And it moves through those that uh, many would least expect it would. Um, it moves through women at a place of prayer who are part of this very small uh, Jewish tradition relative to what was going on in Philippi, uh, right under the shadow of of the walls of empire. This is how God moves in the world, at the margins, uh, among folks at the margins. This is where God calls those who participate in the mission at the margins to love, to serve, to be present with, to see God at work in those at the margins. At the same time, I, I think it is noteworthy for us, this you know, um, mostly white, mostly affluent group of folks, that um, Lydia is, um, she's wealthy. She's privileged in some way. She's affluent. Uh, and so even at the margins, God 
can use someone like Lydia, who who is affluent, who does have resources, uh, to be a, a significant, substantial part, important part of the mission. Uh, and we find ourselves in that part of the story, I think. Uh, this week, we had kids camp for uh, the kids in Hamilton Park. And... Um, we, uh, on, I guess, all three days, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, one of the rhythms for recruitment was to, uh, to go out into the neighborhood, into the highways and the byways. Paul and his minions made, min- Paul Mullen and his minions made their missionary journey out into the neighborhoods. And they went, they went to an apartment complex that sits right at the edge of this neighborhood, uh, which is really like a portal into Central America uh, because it's predominantly Spanish-speaking only um, working-class families that live there and they went just to invite them to come to our kids' camp to have fun, to learn about God and um, we had a group from um, Alpine Church, a group of like 30 fifth and sixth graders, y'all. You should have seen it. It was a trip. Uh, yeah, Coy shaking his head. He knows about that. <laughs> He's been a youth pastor, I think. Uh, so, so they go out and into the highways and byways and and uh, meet some kids. Um, these kids, uh, a, a handful of kids, uh, on Thursday and Friday, uh, join us. And you know, in the moment, it seems pretty small and insignificant. And you know, I know there's there's I heard some some rumblings and some disappointment, like, man, we love to have more kids from the neighborhood. Um, how do we do that? Uh, but just those little forays out into our neighborhood to meet people got me thinking about uh, this story and how God is at the margins and, and how in unexpected ways, in ways that, that we can't see, I, I don't know what will come of the families that we met from that apartment community, but those are exactly the kinds of ways that the kingdom of God moves in the world at the margin. So, so take take heart, you know, take courage, my friend, uh, because you're we are right where we needed to be. I think. Uh, what strikes me more than anything is God's activity in this story. Without the eyes to see, this might just be frustrating. It feels like a lot of trial and error. Uh, But God is at work. The spirit of Jesus is at work, leading Paul and his team forward, even through closed doors, giving them vision when they needed it, opening Lydia's heart and the doors of her house to the gospel and to this new church. God is at work. The Holy Spirit is the, the lead participant and initiator in this story. They don't try to explain it. They don't, they don't parse out exactly how they knew it was the Holy Spirit telling them no or yes, but, but they just say that it was. God just is active in the world around us. If we only have the eyes to see, do we have the eyes? Do we have the ears to hear? Um, I know that for some of us, mission creates this kind of allergic reaction sometimes. Um, not because... Um, we're self-centered or because we don't want to have anything to do with the others out there or whatever, but because we have tried the mission and we've got our 
teeth kicked in. And we know how hard it is. Um, and so there's pain associated with, uh, with the mission. I mean, Paul is about to get thrown in prison and beaten because of it. There, there's guilt or a sense sometimes that we're not doing something right. I hope this story gives you hope. Because you're not alone. This is the way it always is in the mission. It's not something wrong with you. Um, It's not something we're missing. We are not subpar intelligence or subpar gifting. Uh, This is what happens when we engage the mission together. This is the nature of it. You hit a wall and you pivot and you look for God. And you pray to God and you depend on God. We're right in the midst of it. So... Don't lose heart. Don't give up. Uh, the, the breakthrough is just ahead of us. That's how it is for everybody. I was with... Uh, I was with Ryan and Sarah Smith yesterday in Little Rock. No, Friday. They've, uh, we've helped support them to start a church in, uh, outside of Little Rock. And we had a really hard partnering team meeting with them where they're just uh, coming to grips for a number of reasons with uh, in a couple of months um, there won't be any more resources in the bank and they're not really sure how it's going to happen they're about to hit a big wall and there we had lots of hard conversations about um, uh, what to do how do we adapt um, what, where's God in the midst of this there were tears. There, there was lots of frustration. Um, it, was a, it was a battle. It was heavy uh, on some levels. Um, I could see the emotion and the pain in Ryan's face after the meeting concluded. I could see him uh, shaking for his wife and his family, wondering, how are we going to do this? Are, are, we ju- are we just done? Or do we have to hang it up? Um, as we were standing on the sidewalk outside of the storefront, uh, these, a thought goes through my head. Really, it's the words of James Bryan Smith from uh, The Good and Beautiful Community, I think. One of his books where um, he has this wonderful line. Every morning before my kids go to school, we say this line together. Uh, we ask them, where do you live? And they say... We live in the unshakable kingdom of God. So, and we say, what does that mean? And they say, we don't have to be worried. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to prove anything. And that little liturgy popped up into my head. And I said, Ryan, I needed it as much for me as I did for him. Uh, Ryan, the kingdom's not in trouble. Um, you're not in trouble. You, you, you all are going to be okay no matter what. No matter what. And when I read that initially in James Brian Smith, I bowed up and said, well, I mean, you could get killed, couldn't you? Then it wouldn't be okay. And it's like he was reading my mind because the next paragraph he said, even unto death, because God has the power of resurrection. There's nothing we have to be afraid of. The kingdom is not in trouble. So we don't have to be afraid. Yesterday, 
was on retreat with the lead team. We were hazing, I mean, initiating Sarah into her role. And uh, we prayed uh, the, the hours of prayer to begin and the fixed hours, fixed prayer to begin and end our, our meeting, our retreat. Paul led us in the morning prayer liturgy. Part one of the lines was, new every morning is your love, great God of light. And all day long, you are working for good in the world. And Sarah latched onto this prayer in her prayer. This thing, this idea about how all day long, all around the world, and Sarah, because of her work, uh, her head is all over the globe. And she's realizing that these words mean God never sleeps because it's daylight somewhere, everywhere in the world. So God is working in the world all day long, all of the day. Even in the dark for us, it's the daylight somewhere else. We raise some questions for discernment that are ahead of us in this next year. And it surfaced some anxiety and overwhelmedness in me, which I admitted to my teammates, as the mission often does. And Ted, after that, led us in evening prayer. Where he prayed, we praise you and thank you, O God, for you are without beginning and without end. Through Christ, you created the whole world. Through Christ, you preserve it. And that was exactly what I needed to hear. Christ preserves the world. Not me, not us. Christ, through Christ, God preserves the world. The kingdom is not in trouble, so we don't have to be afraid we're going to be okay no matter what happens. All we need to do is with open hearts, give ourselves to God, give ourselves to what he's calling us to. And uh, he's with us. So it's all good. Uh, well, I talked too long. I wanted to get you guys to respond to that. Uh, so I'll just, I'll just pray as a segue into our mission prayers. And we're going to have um, Ben and Jen share with us a little bit about how God is calling them into the mission. Um, in our mission prayers, we we uh, invite people to come and share uh, a breakthrough or a battle that they're facing in the mission or that our missional communities are facing in the mission and then invite someone to pray on their behalf. And so, um, as Ben and Jen share in particular, I'd like to invite any of you whose heart um, it grabs to be prepared to come up when they're done sharing and to lift them up to God. Okay, and I'll I'll kick us off um, with my snotty nose prayer. Lord God, thank you for being the God of this world. Thank you for that through uh, for for the way through Christ you preserve the whole world. Thank you for the way your kingdom will never be shaken. Uh, for the way your kingdom is never in trouble. For the way you are great and mighty and awesome beyond what we can ever fathom. Um, And for the way that you are present and active right around us in our neighborhoods, in the people we know and love. Uh, if, If we can only have eyes to see. God, give us the eyes to see. Give us the hearts to love. Give us the ears to hear. Lead us forward in your mission, God. In Christ we pray. Amen.